Um, welcome back to Raw 12.51am. I'm your host, Will Kingswood, and we're doing the Warwick Up One show once again, looking at the Brazilian Grand Prix. One of the best races of the season, or at least I think one of the best weekends of the season. I think we'll come, we'll do our top tens quickly. I think the race, probably, I'll do, actually, we'll do both. So, race and the weekend in general, just the drama and things like that. I think the race, probably a seven, the weekend, ten out of ten. I mean, and obviously, it wouldn't work with me only doing my. Uh, out of 10 predictions and I've got some co-hosts with me of course my ever dependable ever reliable co-host of the Warwick F1 show Jack he's back what do you think of the race uh, I, I think I'd never leave the studio um I, I it was I mean yeah I think seven is very very harsh that was um fantastic it's got everything that you want from a really good race right okay it didn't have rain but there was uh, you know, someone charging through from the back, and then you had a massive title fight. There was controversy in there. Um, there was, uh, you know, the fans are really uh, brilliant in in Brazil. Yeah, no, the, if any race comes to a ten out of ten, that's probably um, that one. That one for me, to be honest. Um, were there quiet bits? I guess kind of like there are about seven or eight laps I think, around. I think between one and. The first and second pit stops probably the quietest bit. Hamilton always quite close to the DRS, but never could quite get in there. But then, obviously, after the second pit stop, it all erupted. So what? What you give that a ten out of ten? I'm gonna say weekend ten out of ten, race nine out of ten. I think I might have been hard. I'm gonna upgrade mine to a seven. Oh, a seven. That's what it was already. I'm gonna go upgrade mine to an eight out of ten. But we've also got a first timer, Hirschraub. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm guessing you you watched the race. I mean, what did you think of it? Like, out of 10 race and then out of 10 for the weekend. Um, uh, I'd say Jack's assessment is pretty fair. I think weekend, undoubtedly, 10 out of 10. You've had everything. You've had um, technical drama. um, You've had logistical drama leading Mm. up to the weekend. You've had a fantastic race. Um, And for the race itself... um, I'd say 9 out of 10 as well. And I think this just goes to show you don't need rain or you don't need carnage ensuing through the field to have a fun race. You can have an equally amazing and equally fantastic spectacle just through the top four fighting it out. Yeah, you just need just need Brazil. Brazil's a good track. I think we missed it last year, but it's good to have it back. So what we're going to do this time, we're just going to go through it chronologically because it felt like every day... There was a new bit of news that we had to follow. So on Thursday, not much really to talk about here. Well, I guess throughout the week, uh, there were issues with getting the cars even to the track, which we don't normally we don't normally see. Normally, it's quite a well-run thing. And I guess the one thing it brings up is, if especially if we're going towards a 25 race calendars, I think um, like Liberty Media want, we're gonna have to we're gonna have more of these triple headers, and I think that we're going to have to make sure that this doesn't happen. Because let's imagine we go from Austin to somewhere. And or we go from, like, we go to the Americas in October. It's hurricane season. Let's imagine a hurricane hits as we're about to leave. How are the, the cars aren't going to get to the next track in time. So are you do you think that this is something that's going to be looked at in the future because of what has happened this week so i'm going to give the kind of technical explanation uh, logistics is like 
I'm going to say logistics is my passion. It's not. It's just what I'm doing for um, for degree. Uh, basically, they the, the teams have multiple kits. Um, cars wise, yes, the car has to be uh, has to be sent every time. But they have garage kits. They have three, I think, generally, um, and they'll be sent to flyaway races. That's what the flyaway races mean. So, I mean. Uh, Brazil to Mexico wasn't a flyaway race because they've got one kit there and that's only going to make that relatively short distance, right? But if they're going to Qatar, then that kit has been sent on a ship, you know, three months in advance. So if the FIA are careful about where they're sending things um, and if it comes to triple headers, again, having it like it is at the moment... Um, having two in a row and then the third one being a flyaway race, then that will reduce the risk, risk somewhat. But, you know, it obviously hasn't fixed it for this weekend. It's, you know, having two races in a row is always going to be difficult. Uh, and trying to run a proper calendar with not having two races in a row is just not reasonable, is it? But every, you're right, every time we have a triple header, it does increase that risk. Yeah, and I mean... With the with the new um, with the new like seasons adding more and more races to travel, do you think that they, especially with obviously the environmental concerns of F one, do you think there will be sort of a more like a heading towards a direction where we put all the races at one point? Because the most like odd example I can think of is like normally we go from I think it's Monaco to Canada. And then back to France or Austria or whatever, and that that seems a bit wasteful. I understand why they do it because obviously, if we're putting the Canadian Grand Prix now, it's it's way too cold. You'd have to. It would be. Is it snowing in Montreal? Like probably. I think you you definitely have races in Montreal or in a November Montreal race that it would probably have snow on them. So um, quite honestly, um, just thinking about that, one concern, as you mentioned, um, environmental and. It's not the best picture for F1 or Liberty Media when they're going towards this hybrid future and they're promoting sustainability when their logistics aren't the most sustainable. Um, but more importantly, and the more worrying part for me, as a, an engineer who wants to work in F1 in the future, is um, seeing the fatigue and the strain the current schedule puts on um, the engineers and the mm -hmm. mechanics. So the best example, I have the 2022 calendar in front of me, um, From race two, it's Jeddah, Melbourne, Imola, Miami, Barcelona, and Monaco. So in terms of continents and in terms of rough areas, it goes Middle East to Australia, back to Europe, to North America, back to Europe again, one race in Europe, and then to Montreal, which is, again, North America. Mm. And I think that's just, um, obviously, like you said, there might be um, reasons behind it, but... Um, The way it seems on the face of it is just very poor planning because uh, this is going to require a lot of kit and a lot of traveling. And that's going to put an immense strain, not just on the people, but also on all every bit of logistics involved yeah. in the full machine. And I think the problem with like something like Australia is it's just so far away from everything, especially... Well, we should probably do this one where you probably design a calendar based on like, ge like geography because so, you, logically you could put... Australia between like Singapore and Japan maybe it's a bit better I think that's going to be one for like previewing 2022 I think yeah so it will be it will be a problem into the future especially if we're going to 25 races but they man they managed to get all the cars there they managed to put them all out for Friday running and 
Friday, qualifying day, because obviously it's sprint format, and we saw quite a dominant display from one Lewis Hamilton. I mean, were you expecting, obviously, we'll come on to maybe why he was so dominant, and um, I'll, like, we'll play a song first, but then we can talk about the controversy, but when you saw that initially on Friday, Hamilton being so quick after a race that he lost to a race that he lost to Max Verstappen just in the USA, a race that he, they were convincingly beaten in Mexico. Obviously, they may have expected it, but it was quite a margin of defeat. And then he comes here, and I think he, were, how, how he was like four tenths quicker. Over, yeah, over an incredibly short lap. It's, I want to say it's the third shortest in F1. Are we talking time or distance? Because I think distance, distance uh, maybe. I think time-wise, it's the second shortest. Yeah, I think so only Austria is, is a quicker lap. Yeah, so Austria and Monaco are shorter, but only Austria's quicker. And four tenths, especially. Okay, if we are talking time, four tenths is a lot over sixty-eight seconds, especially in F one cars where every thousandth counts. So, did you expect Mercedes to be that quick? No, I mean, of course not. I like. I like I did. I didn't. I wasn't able to catch the race live, unfortunately. Uh, consequence of uh, sprint races and why I kind of don't like them. Um, but uh, sorry, the qualifying live, um, and uh, they didn't even have Channel Four coverage of it. So all, everything I've got is kind of like condensed into about eight minutes of YouTube footage. But no, until Q3, I didn't actually like believe that pace was genuine. I didn't believe the Red Bulls were going full out, um, and then it was just like what on earth is is happening he's he's livid about something or he's he's got you know he's realized that he's going to have to go out and grab this championship out of the hands of max verstappen there um and he he kind of you know but i i don't know I, that never really stood out to me as a track that he's really good at right no brazil has always in my opinion been one of his weaker ones he won in 2016 in the wet which we would probably expect and now he was chasing that title because I think he was quite a way behind um, Rosberg at that point. He won in 2018. It wasn't deserved because Ocon collided with Verstappen, who was ahead, and then puts him out of the race. So you could almost say, I would almost say this was probably his weakest circuit in terms of results. It's really hard to say, isn't in it? Ter- in, yeah, in terms of We've only got one results. Other. Like, there are some circuits... It's weird because you say like a circuit with two wins that's been on the calendar for Hamilton's entire career. If he's only got like two wins there, we say it's a weak circuit. I think Monaco is probably another one that he's surprisingly never done too well at. But then obviously he's won three times. But we've got to think about it in terms of like the sort of cars that he's been in. So to see him come here and then be four tenths ahead. And this is something I forgot to mention and I'll bring it to both of you. Before then, or before uh, qualifying, and I'm not, I think it might have been before practice, he takes a new ICE and gets a five place grid penalty. Do you think, looking at how the race has panned out, this is a question for both of you, do you think looking at how the race has panned out, maybe not in terms of the result, but in terms of how much quicker he was than everyone else, and we're coming to three power, you'd say power tracks. Jeddah, 100% looking like a power track. Obviously, Qatar's a bit different. We don't really know, but it looks fairly similar to like a Bahrain. 
and Hamilton and Mercedes have always been strong there. And Abu Dhabi, Hamilton, uh, Hamilton and Mercedes, I think they've only they only lost twenty twenty since the start of the hybrid era. Could be, and that's yep. because of the Red Bull development cycle, right? Yeah. So do you think that maybe Mercedes have pulled a blinder in taking that engine? Because now they've theoretically got Engine 4, which has been in since Turkey, so it's a bit older. How many races have we had since Turkey? Is it three? Let's go three. Yep. Yeah. And now we've got Engine 5. These engines probably last eight races, so you've got one engine on one race, one engine on three races with three races to go. You'd say that they're in a really strong position with just how quick they were, and especially with eventually it panned out that they didn't lose any points from taking that five-place grid penalty. So about that, I obviously, I see why Mercedes took the penalty in Brazil. It makes a lot of sense. Firstly, as a matter of fact, I think um, Brazil 2021 for Hamilton was in many ways a kind of... um, replica of Brazil 2017 for him. Um, That was the year he crashed out in qualifying, starting Mm. from the back. And in my opinion, this weekend and that weekend had a lot in common. They both had Mercedes as the dominant car that weekend. And in both cases, Hamilton charging through the field. And the moves he was making and the way he was driving on both weekends was almost identical. I think in that race, he finished about 10 seconds off the lead with no safety cars. um, And he came from the back, obviously, Mm. 20 up to fourth, I think it was. So clearly... There was a lot in common, but um, as for whether Mercedes have done the right thing, they undoubtedly have. But I don't think particularly their advantage is going to last as much as it was in Brazil through the next three races. And there's one technical reason for that. Um, Christian Horner was talking about it during the race. He said um, a Honda engine from the start of its life cycle till about the end of its life cycle loses only about a tenth in performance. Whereas the Mercedes engine has a much significant performance drop-off compared to that, which starts manifesting itself from about the second race of that engine itself. So, though undoubtedly, Mercedes was running Hamilton at a higher engine mode. Um, and you can see that not just through his pace advantage over the Red Bulls, but also over Bottas. And Bottas doesn't tend to go badly around Brazil. He's fairly decent at the track. But yeah. even just in the speed traps, Hamilton was about 5Ks quicker than Bottas, which in a car with almost identical setups and identical machinery, you don't expect. So um, it was clear to see Mercedes was running him at a higher engine mode. I'm not sure they're going to be running at those same engine modes for the next three races. Because like I said, the drop-off in performance for the Mercedes engines over its life cycle is much more significant than it is for the Honda engine. So I think they will turn the engines down for the next race. However, I yet do think they will retain their advantage, just not as dramatically as we saw in Brazil, like the tune of four tenths over a 68-second lap. Yeah. And do you want to add anything? I mean, I'll try and put that in context of the start of the season as well. We've got to cast our mind all the way back. It's been so long. Yeah. Bahrain was obviously, both cars have new engines, right? Yeah. So um, Hamilton wins it. And... It was very close, right? But it was probably the most equal in terms of car yeah. performance we've had. Race after that, uh, Italy, uh, and Verstappen, of course, won that one. Now that's not quite as as simple. Um, and you saw that that Hamilton had pace; he overtook the McLarens towards the end of the race, uh, and then he went then went on won two more races after that. But that was less because of uh, outright pace. And I think Portugal was. Portugal and Spain were too very... That's why I think a lot of people were surprised that the championships this close. After three of the first four races, 
Hamilton's won and two of those have been quite convincing. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Um, I tried to to help prove the point because I do think it is true. Um, I do think that, yeah, of course, we're looking at this from a recency bias kind of um, perspective and things change so quickly in F1 and this weekend has obviously showed that. So I don't think you can assume that this is the form that Mercedes are going to be in, you know, come next race, let alone three races time. Yeah. Well, three races to go, and they've taken a second engine. So we've sort of, I mean, Hushrav, do you want to just add anything about qualifying in general? I know I sort of went on a tangent there, but just did you enjoy it? Like, what were your thoughts on qualifying? So just the Friday qualifying itself? Yeah, yeah, um, just the Friday. I think, I think I'm not surprised to see Hamilton up there. Um, and I kind of expected him to have that margin because, like I said, um, I knew Mercedes would run him at a higher power unit setting this weekend compared to Bottas even um, and then the way in general the Mercedes car has handled this year it tends to be very good in about the low speed flowy corners which is basically what the entire middle sector yeah. of Brazil is and then obviously when you add that um, to the insane pace advantage it had in a straight line the last sector of Brazil sector 3 is basically one corner and then just the full straight so you you'd think out of two out of three sectors, that Mercedes is looking like the most dominant car. Um, so if you consider that, and then you consider the fact that Bottas is running on a bit of a weaker handicapped engine, it's it's no surprise that Hamilton was that far up ahead in qualifying compared to, forget the Red Bulls, but even Bottas. Yeah, and he was quite far up ahead, but after the, right, after the qualifying, we began to see a few rumblings in the paddock, especially involving the stewards, but... And we are back, as it said there, with Raw 12.51am and back on the Warwick F1 show looking at the Brazilian Grand Prix. So, as I mentioned before the break, after qualifying, something something was afoot in the, FI, in the, in the F1 paddock. Mercedes were called to the stewards for alleged the failure of their rear wing. So, I mean, Jack, do you want to sort of, like, explain... Okay, I'm going to do a promo as well. So I, I've made a I've made a YouTube video on this, and it's on the Warwick F1 Society page. So if you want to have a more in-depth uh, explanation, you can go and watch that. Uh, however, the basics of it were pretty much that uh, in park Fermi conditions, you're not allowed to touch cars, alter them in any way, and that's kind of there for the teams. Um, but what happened was Verstappen got out of the car, had a look at the two rear wings, uh, including putting his fingers... Uh, on or near the uh, rear wing of um, Lewis Hamilton and then uh, Hamilton went to scrutineering and he failed the scrutineering test because the gap uh, in the rear wing when the DRS was open was too large Uh, and what happens is they test it by putting a ball kind of through the gap um, with a force of 10 newtons uh, and when they didn't apply a force it didn't go through Uh, and when they did apply a force it went through so they failed the test but the gap kind of with no pressure on it was almost exactly 85 millimetres. Yeah. So I think, well, they said it were, or Mercedes, obviously, take every, you've got to take everything a team says with a pinch of salt because obviously they're not going to say exactly probably what, they don't want to give things away and things like that. But Mercedes said that the, they failed it by 0.2 millimetres on one side. So it was on the right hand side. Something had failed and there, maybe it was maybe 
I mean, my original theory was it had just been put together. There was a mistake in putting the car together because obviously we mentioned, as we mentioned before, they got the cars late. They extended or they cancelled like part Fermi or what was it? They said curfew. Yeah, that's it. They cancelled curfew conditions overnight on Thursday. And they, um, you, you say it. So Mercedes were quite surprised that they were, they'd been, um, disqualified because especially they were complaining that Red Bull had been given the opportunity to replace a what they call or I guess Mercedes are probably the best suspect of this but Red Bull called it a broken rear wing on their cars uh, for the last three races and then Mercedes come along fail it by a minuscule margin because something has broken and even the FIA say in their judgment that they know it's not deliberate, but something is broken, and then they get disqualified. I guess, Hushrav, do you think it was a fair decision? Now, I think in two parts. Did you think it was a fair decision at the time, and with the added information that we've got now, do you still like hold the same opinion? I think it was a fair decision, no matter what you consider. Um, and. So let's look at it from two aspects. Um, firstly, let's look at it just from the Mercedes rear wing test point of view. Um, it's it's a technical test they failed. Um, I think there should be no exceptions in a technical test fail. Um, the best example being Vettel in Hungary. Um, mm. I think a fuel pump broke on his um, Aston Martin, and that prevented fuel from being extracted, which was actually inside the car. They just could not extract it. And that led to a pretty controversial disqualification from second place. But at the end of the day, the regulation stated you had to extract whatever bit of fuel it was, and they couldn't. And I think it's only fair that he was disqualified that time. And the same case applies to Hamilton, whether you fail it by 0.2 or you fail it by 2mm. And regardless of whether you fail it by accident or it's intentionally put that way, I don't think you can ever quite make an exception for it because then teams start to exploit those grey areas and I think that's why just that test alone I think it was fair that he was disqualified or given the appropriate appropriate penalty for that failure. Now as for the Red Bull argument um, I think the way that information has been put across tends to put Red Bull in, in pretty bad light um, mm. and makes the FI look very partial towards Red Bull but the one crucial element of Red Bull replacing Verstappen's wing overnight is that they actually passed the scrutineering which Mercedes didn't so what Red Bull basically did was they just replaced a like for like element um, it was just a structural break um, rather than him failing scrutineering and therefore Red Bull having to replace it so I think that's the main difference between oh, okay. the two cases okay. between Red Bull and Mercedes but like I said the way the media portrayed it um, did make Red Bull seem like they had some kind of overhead influence over the FIA, which is why Verstappen wasn't penalised, but Hamilton was. But the main difference is Hamilton failed the technical scrutineering, but as Verstappen's car, the rearing was fine. It passed technical scrutineering. It was just a mandatory replacement. Yeah, I'd like to add a point to that as well. Um, if, like Leclerc and Monaco, uh, you crash into a wall, you then don't have to pass scrutineering until you've fixed everything. So, amusingly, if Hamilton had ditched it on that last lap, his uh, uh, his first time would have been good enough for pole, uh, and no one would have ever known that he was about to fail scrutineering. Um, but, you know, that's 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 all uh, in the dust. That's an interesting point. <laughs> Can you imagine if teams just start telling their drivers, like... If they put it on pole and then just tell their drivers to bin it in the wall, then fix everything. 
just bring- to add to that, um, <laughs> the interesting thing is, um, like I said, when you when you start making exceptions in these cases, I, I understand, I fully agree that the penalty, a disqualification for 0.2 millimeters, is very harsh. It probably didn't gain Hamilton any time itself. But if you start allowing things mm. like that, um, it opens up this kind of loophole area for teams where they might intentionally start doing things like this. And then, like you said, it can be something as simple as ditching the car, for example. Um, obviously, I don't think teams are no. that um, that dedicated to the cause that they ditch their car to pass scrutineering. But there are ways. These guys are intelligent people. Um, there are ways they can work their, um, they can work around that and pass scrutineering despite having illegal bits on the car. Um, if Ferrari could go a full season with what was at that time an illegal engine, I'm sure they can work their way around things like this if exceptions are made. So I'm kind of glad that the FIA is sticking with this harsh but fair approach of penalising um, any kind of um, technical infringements on the spot. Yeah, and the issue is that he hasn't beaten anyone legitimately, right? Even in Q3, if his car doesn't fit scrutineering, then it doesn't fit scrutineering. Like, I can go and take a, you know, uh, if, if, I, if you go and drive a Honda NSX around the track, it's not it's not an F1 car. If it's, if it's not past scrutineering, then it's not valid to go and beat anyone else. Yeah. It's just not a fair comparison, is it? So, yes, obviously... He would beat, you know, Mick Schumacher in the Haas if his car is valid. But the, the, the line is that you have to have a valid car to do that. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think it was harsh but fair because we want the technical regulations especially to be as black and white as possible. And it, it, it failed. You can't, no, you can't really get around that. Maybe... I can understand why Mercedes would argue to the break of dawn. They basically did argue to the break of dawn about it. But the issue, the thing is, they argued that they were on the black side and not the white side. Not that the black side should become a bit more grey or whatever. Yeah. I think I think it was harsh but fair. And this sort of, if we're going to have, we'll come on to this as well. If we're going to have the sporting regulations be so mis, like misapplied all the time then we may as well have one side of it that is um, that is a bit more black and white. And I guess the other part of the incident was Max Verstappen touching the car, which, again, I think it's been... It's one of those that's just never really been enforced, but in this case it probably did need to be because, obviously, Mercedes are going to use everything in the book to try and not get their car disqualified. And if they see Max Verstappen touching a car or touching their car then they're going to complain about it. And as soon as you complain about it, then you sort of have to penalise it in a way. But, of course, um, again, the fine for Verstappen, fair enough. Um, drivers have done it before. It's just that I think Vettel especially does it very often, but no does, one's really complained about it. Does Vettel do it and after yeah, I the was race? Just gonna say, I was just going to say, there is a crucial difference as to what Vettel does. Yeah. So, um, Vettel, first of all, never touches it after qualifying. I think I've seen him touch a car once after qualifying, and the part he's touched is always the tyres. And by regulation, tyres aren't exactly considered an active part of the car, because once um, the car's in part for me, the teams actually remove the tyres, wash them and everything. So the tyres are actually touched by team personnel afterwards, but the car isn't. So Vettel always, if he does, he always pushes the tyres um, to check and he only ever touches the car after the race and after the race the car is no longer in bar Fermi, mm. which means he's allowed to touch the car but I think as for the Verstappen incident obviously he did something wrong he got fined for it but whether that really 
affected Hamilton passing scrutineering. Oh, no, My no. argument would be very simple. Um, if that wing was deflected by um, about a 70, 80 kilogram Max Verstappen, um, I wouldn't put that car on a racetrack <laughs> where it's being um, subject to a few thousand newtons of force because that rear wing would disintegrate to pieces very quickly if Max Verstappen could manipulate it. So as for whether there was, an, was, whether there was ever an argument that Verstappen manipulated the rear wing, I don't think that was the case. Yeah, I mean, uh, the two things. Uh the, the the car is in part firmly conditions until the stewards have looked at it um, after the race. But you're right; they don't, you know. Um, I do think uh, I do think Vettel was kind of doing something wrong as uh, as as it's written in the rules. But um, that they obviously because it doesn't have an effect and because it is like you know it's one tiny clause in in a hundred page document. Um, probably people just like didn't even register that, that was an issue because it's not there to stop the drivers doing it really is it? it's more to yeah. get the teams um you know stop them meddling with the car afterwards uh and uh what was my third point um i do think that it is possible for a 70-80 kilogram driver to affect it because they can apply different forces to the way that the the you know the stream is if he if he goes in like he can go and smack a ball or whatever but you know obviously the footage showed that wasn't even close Not to what he did. Stopping, did yeah yeah i yeah. think you you saw you understand why mercedes argue it yeah. it was a large last ditch effort and i think if you're on the position of mercedes where it's either your driver starting on pole or at the back. If I was Toto Wolf, I would argue my life out that Max Verstappen did manipulate our rear wing. Oh, yeah. And yeah. You, like, they were, def- they yeah. were going to argue it because this is, it's a competitive sport. And once you got to the point where they did argue it, Verstappen, he's broken a technical regulation. So he has to be have some sort of punishment, I think. They'll probably start enforcing it a bit more. Or I think it's just they've sort of the FIA have fired a warning shot. Basically, they're like, "Don't do this again," because we will have to make it a lot more serious. Because now everyone is aware of like the fact you can't sort of touch. Yeah, I think it's an accidental precedent, and now they're setting like a proper precedent. So no, we we put Paula and the F1 Society Instagram uh, for both penalties, and both of them were like, "Is it too lenient? Is it too harsh?" And both of them were like slap bang in the middle. So either there's the exactly the same number of Max and Hamilton fans, <laughs> or uh, they did a good job, which I think is probably more likely. Yeah, I think we ended up with probably the correct decisions, which we'll come on to. It's probably not the case for a few other steward decisions during the race, especially. But we had Lewis Hamilton starting in 20th, Max Verstappen, 50,000 euro fine, few less FIFA points on the account and after the break we'll come back and talk about the sprint because that was sort of the start of the redemption arc for Lewis Hamilton especially and we are back with the work F1 show talking about Brazil as always well not always as of this week we'll be on another race that's right after Qatar we'll be talking about Brazil as well yeah it's just going to be the Brazilian Grand Prix for the rest of time but we saw a bit of a well, sort of sort of bit of a precursor to the Brazilian Grand Prix with the Brazilian sprint race. It was a it was a crazy one, wasn't it? It was a crazy one. I mean, Hershab, you're a first time on the show. What is sort of your opinions of this whole sprint concept as it was this year? Obviously they're gonna change it. 
Um, I think the sprint concept in itself is a good concept. I think the area the FIA has failed in this year is enforcing it at the right tracks up until Brazil. I think Brazil was a nice place. And I think Brazil was the first real taste of what sprint races can do. Um, but I think the previous two places, um, Silverstone and um, Monza, I think, funnily enough, despite how power-dependent they are, I think are the two hardest tracks bar Monaco to overtake in on the current calendar um, because of just how affected by Dodia yeah, these cars are. So I think Brazil was actually the first proper chance we got to see what sprint races can um, throw at us. And I think it was it was the perfect setup for a sprint race, a fast car charging in through the back, um, a good battle at the front as well, um, a very nice defensive drive by Sainz um, to hold off um, a significantly faster Sergio Perez. Mm. So um, I think it was exactly what's, what the sprint format was designed for. The sprint format was designed to that... Um, the, the faster cars, the bigger teams, could make mistakes, like Mercedes did in qualifying with Hamilton, and stir up the sprint race that way, or slower cars, such as Sainz, um, by some kind of um, racecraft, making their way up the field and holding off the faster cars for the rest of the sprint. So I think Brazil, the sprint race at Brazil, perfectly amplified the formula of the sprint race. Yeah, and we'll come on to how Brazil can sort of demonstrate some lessons that we'll learn into the future, obviously, with the increase in sprint races that we're going to get but we'll talk about this one quickly drive of the season in terms of just the so 24 laps drive of the season from lewis hamilton he gains 15 positions in 24 laps one position every it's about one position every one and a half laps he overtakes everyone very quickly and he's up the he, with I'd say with three or four more laps, he's on the podium. Do you think? I think it, he he was catching Norris, wasn't he? But I think the gap to the top three was a bit bigger. No, I th- I thought he was like just he came s- back a second behind Perez. Over yeah. Was it? Yeah. And Perez was the second. Oh yeah, it was, Ga- it was Gasly, not Norris. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, the greatest ever comeback in terms of kilometers per, I guess, overtake. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's because everyone's bunched up right at the start, though, isn't it? It was a pretty, it was a pretty good, it was a pretty good performance. There's no, obviously, that's in, uh, uh, an under exaggeration. But um, then we have to talk about like, does sprint race drives count well, as I guess, the best okay. drive of the season? If we say that, that sprint, feels that feels cheap to say that for a, uh, not even a proper Grand Prix. If we technically say the sprint race is qualifying is a qualifying format. Do you think it's the qualifying of the season? I think regardless of the way you put it, um, fantastic performance. Firstly, just Mm. to get that out of the way, brilliant performance, regardless of whether you consider it a qualifying or race or any kind of motorsport, it was a fantastic performance. Whether it was the performance of the season, I'm not quite sure, but um, the only reason I say I'm not sure is because as much as Hampton did have a lot of inert skill in that drive. Um, you do have to understand his car minus the Red Bulls was a second faster than um, Ferrari, Mercedes, Aston Martin, and about a second and a half, two seconds over the rest of the field. Mm. So when you have that kind of pace advantage, I think I'd be more um, surprised if he didn't get to where he was. But then again, I think the fact that I'm saying this only goes to prove how high Hamilton set the bar over the previous years, that a drive from... 20th to 5th was it 
is impressive, but yet not the drive of the season. And I think it just goes to show the standard that's been set, not just by Hamilton, but by the rest of the field over this year as well. Because I, th- I think there's been some brilliant drives across mm-hmm. the season, which quite possibly outshine this one, which have been done on cars with lesser of a pace advantage than the Mercedes. Okay. I, not- think, I think that's fair, especially because he didn't get any points at the end of it. And obviously it comes in on the road you've got to do it on race day. Yeah, it's not just about the pace, though. It's the fact that he never really missed an opportunity to make an overtake. Like, you'd see him a second, you know, a second, second and a half behind going uh, yeah, into the, the start of the lap, and you'd be like, oh, well, that's going to be, you know... He he might he might bring that down to one second going into the final straight, and then he probably won't make it. But um, he brings it down to eight tenths, and then he's able to dive down the inside uh, going into the first corner. He just did that every single time that there was anyone within that one half two second gap. And there were plenty of opportunities when you know maybe a lesser driver backs out, and then they're two seconds behind going into the next lap because there are two opportun- opportun- overtaking opportunities in the lap, right? Basically, yeah. No, turn one and then turn. I think he only ever used one of them in the sprint as well. But. I think he, I think he got Leclerc in turn four, but other than that, it was all turn one. And I think you'd like you mentioned that. I don't think up until Leclerc, when it started, the gap started to get a bit bigger, and he actually did have to catch people. I think the longest gap might have been three laps. I think there was actually a period. Um, I think between. Somewhere, I'm not quite sure, but memory serves me right, about lap 7 to lap 12 or 13, where he, I think he actually stalled out behind Daniel Ricciardo. I was thinking, yeah, it was Ricciardo. um, Ricciardo was stuck behind Vettel, who was consequently stuck behind Ocon, who was then stuck behind Gasly, and they were all in a massive DRS train. And the thing is, the McLaren and the Aston Martin are both Mercedes-powered cars, and the Renault is not too shabby in a straight line. I mean, the Alpine's not too shabby in a straight line either. So I think Hamilton actually stalled out there for a few laps, and which is why I think his drive is that much more impressive, because he then cleared all those cars and then made his way up to fifth. So I'd say up till about, I think it's not, for me, it's not 20th to fifth, for me, it's, I think, 12th to 5th in the span mm. of seven laps. Because I think after he cleared Vettel, it was a mover lap. Yeah. And it, if you think about it with the race, he overtook 22 cars in 35 laps. 24, surely. Oh, wait. So hang on. Oh, oh you, are you adding in up, the... I'd say he got up to third. Yeah, okay. When yep. Yeah, I get you. So it was... Basically, 22 cars in 35 laps, some of them being, obviously, a few. Norris might have been a bit more difficult. He gets past Bottas really easily because, obviously, they're going to do team orders. But even if we even fine, even if we take out Bottas, it's 20 overtakes or 21 overtakes in 33, 34 laps, which is... Monument. That's no matter what car you're in. That is incredibly impressive. Like, yes, you're right. <laughs> you're right, yeah, and we can't really add anything to that. Yeah, there's not much else to add. Well, um, so I guess the final thing we'll talk about is how can we learn from this race? And I guess by extension, Silverstone and Monza. This is the final sprint race of the season. When we're going into next season, where we're getting six. With that is confirmed for next season, right? We get six. I don't know if it's confirmed, but I'm pretty sure we're going to yeah. get them. So, format-wise, we've seen the cars coming from the back, very exciting. We've seen, or 
we've seen cars coming from the back very exciting. We've seen the potential jeopardy of getting it wrong with Perez in Silverstone and Gasly in Monza. We've seen the potential controversy of the person who wins the sprint race getting pole position. What would you change going into next year? The thing is, whatever whatever you change, there's you create a new issue. Because I think the issue, the issue for me at the moment is I'm not able to watch qualifying. I think that's an issue. Uh, I think the fact is that you, we said this a couple of weeks ago, that the first uh, kind of third of the race is generally the ones that are less exciting. And in Brazil, the race was exciting all the way through, and so was the sprint race. But we had that in Monza, that once we got past four laps, we just were in the most boring equivalent, you know, bit of the race where the gaps are kind of extending uh, and, and there's no one coming back through there's no strategy there's nothing um i think if you try and fix that issue then you potentially create the issue of you're kind of one you're dilating what f1 is you're looking at randomness like talking you know reverse grids you're all over the place i just think the format is there's always going to have a significant issue and because of that i would just rather it didn't exist because mm. i don't think you know if it isn't an issue and it's introduced and this makes it better or as good no problem if it is an issue and this is introduced and there's still issues with it but it's as good no problem with that but the format was never an issue right oh, i don't think yeah. so i think the ideas would be make the sprint race its own separate sort of event so you qualify whenever friday for sunday make the sprint race something like like either a external race reverse the top eight in championship order put the other cars in championship order something like that or and then more points and then obviously pole goes to the person on who wins on friday i think I think what I would do is just make the sprint race a bit more independent of the qualifying to race thing, and then you can do the you can do the t- reverse the I think reverse the top eight, top ten, or whatever. Yeah, I think the way I look at sprint races is um, I agree very strongly with the points made, but I also disagree with them in the sense that. I don't think the format's perfect, the current standard race weekend format. Um, and that's the way I tend to think of sprint races. So firstly, I think, what are sprint races replacing? The so sprint races, firstly, um, are replacing um, standard qualifying replaces practice two on yeah. the Friday. And then sprint races le- replace practice three on the Saturday. Both of those sessions, I think, for... Um, uh, I'd say a, n- a new F1 fan or well someone who isn't that technically into Formula 1 I think both those sessions are fairly boring so um, in terms of bringing in fan engagement I think both of those do a very good job because you have one extra race and you have qualifying on the Friday um, then of course you look at the commercial reasons like Jack said he can't watch qualifying on Friday which I think is quite a problem for many diehard fans of F1 and then also I do agree that um, I don't think sprint races should be should have that much of an outcome on the final race on Sunday. So that's something that they need to work on. But as for what it's substituting, substituting, I think sprint races do a very good job, actually, because they give me a race on Saturday, uh, whereas otherwise I'd be snoring away watching FB3, which is quite possibly the most boring session of the weekend. Yeah, I think there's too much of a gap between the 
sprint and the race. That's that would change my mind a bit, and I've just thought about that because it's about kind of the the build up of the weekend. So kind of I like it because if I miss Friday, that's fine. I get to see that one Saturday session, and then we're off. Um, uh, but if if you're you know you're a bit more into your uh, your fandom, you can you start slow on Friday, and then you get a better session on Saturday, and it really builds that hype. But there's almost kind of dying of the hype at the end of the the sprint race for me right uh, maybe not so much this weekend mm. because you know it, you, this one is like not representative we know that right yeah. you're not going to have someone charging through with that kind of pace and that's not because it's a sprint race that's just because you know the penalty happened so you think maybe yeah. change the format maybe go like friday is p1 p2 or practice one do two practices on friday Saturday morning when you'd normally get a sprint, uh, another practice, you do qualifying and then do the sprint in the afternoon. Because I, I like the aesthetic of the afternoon races. I like the sort of sunset vibes. Yeah. It just makes it a bit different. Two options. One, make it so every race is either a early, well, not too early morning, but morning race, um, or make it a proper night race. And then the sprint happens in the morning on the Sunday. So if it's a if it's in you know if it's in Qatar, Bahrain, Jeddah, wherever we get night races, then you have those two races on that day. I think you, you go if it's a night race, maybe you go like a sunset sprint. That'd be I cool. think two races um, from technical point of view um, would be very very close. Given if a car were to have a pretty big mm. shunt, because we've seen it in F two already, where they tried three races, I think this year, and they had two races on one day. Um, I think in the first day, and um, Often cars that had heavy shunts in the first race struggled and even in some cases did not make the grid for race two. And I think it would be a real shame to see that in F1. Obviously, assembling an F1 car is, I'd say, tenfold more complex than assembling an F2 car. So if a driver were to shunt, I think the ramifications for the second race on the same day would be pretty big. And as, as fair as it would be if you crash, you don't start, I think it would also be a very harsh outcome. And I wouldn't want to see a championship and a few standings decided by the fact that a driver couldn't take part in the race because he shunted in the previous one. I mean, once again, you've got these, the, the issue, like where you pre- present a solution to one issue and it's, exactly. it opens yeah. up another one. I mean, I still think if you do everything on Saturday and Sunday, do qualifying in the morning, sprint in the afternoon, and make them independent events, then the qualifying, if you crash in qualifying, you lose your sprint. You lose your sprint. So there's that jeopardy involved, but you can still take part in the normal race. And I think that there are certain races where this should be trialed, and one of them... This is my weekly Miami Grand Prix be at night post because that race should be at night. And you know what? A sprint sunset Miami Grand Prix would be an ideal format. And that has been Will Kingswood's weekly Miami GP should be at night. I will keep doing this until they put it at night because that race would look good at night. I think it would. We need to like... We need to solidify what uh, what we say every week because yeah. So Jack's got his conspiracy theory. I've got my weekly advocate. and whinging about the stewards, which we're going to do in a minute. Yep, that's um, what we'll do. So so by by this time next year, every every single one will just be a carbon copy of each other because <laughs> we'll have filled up so much. Like we have to mention this. Yeah, but when when F one eventually realise this is the best podcast, they will put it at night. But we finish with the sprint, and after the break, we'll come on to the main race. And as we've said, it's one that you, it's one that no one should have missed out on. 
back on the Warwick Have One show. And we've got a new guest. He's a regular. We know him. We love him. It's Chinmay. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Yeah. Ready to talk about the Brazilian Grand Prix. As Jack was, say, Jack was saying during the break, we've, we've managed to reach an hour in before we started the race. I think that just tells you how good the weekend was. But we'll come straight into the race. I think we could probably ignore most of it. We'll just run it through. Hamilton gets up to third in about five seconds. I mean, very impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blood, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, race sort of pans out as we'd expect. There, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. I, there is one thing I really want to whinge about, um, and that is the Stroll Sonoda incident. Because uh, right. we saw two turn one incidents, we also saw sure, bleh, we also saw Schumacher versus uh, Raikkonen. That was quite ironic because they said at the start yeah, of the weekend they we, wanted to race each other. We got the memes. That was funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Stroll versus Sonoda. Have you guys had a look on at the had a look back at it or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in my mind, that was the worst stewards' decision I have seen all year, and there have been some pretty bad ones. Really? Yes, really. Mm. Not in not in the terms of the you know the consequences of the world championship or whatever, but uh, it was so wrong in my opinion because Sonoda has done nothing wrong there, and you know uh, he has come from late back, yes, but he has braked in time. He is in a position to make the corner. He has not pushed Stroll anywhere. He is more on the curb than anybody at any point during the race. Uh, and all that's happened is Stroll has turned in on him. That's that's what it looks like to me. So he is coming from quite far back, though. It doesn't matter. If you're alongside at the apex, then yeah, he's... No, was he alongside at the apex? I don't think he yeah, was. No, I think he, he was just a bit ahead of his um, right. rear axle. But I it's got to be halfway alongside, right? But it well, he, halfway yeah, but he's halfway. Al- I would yeah. say he's halfway alongside because he's at the point of contact. Yeah. And the only reason he was that far inside of the curb was only to avoid going right into the back of Stroll. That's why he was that far inside. I think ten seconds is harsh. Yes, but oh, yeah. I think it should have been five seconds. Oh yes, yeah. I'd say five. No, absolutely rubbish. Right. No, no way. Uh, at we the point of contact, they were like uh, uh, about half a meter apart. Like, all right, distance. we decide. I'm the host. My views don't matter. Boo. Um, Hirschrav thinks five second penalty. penalty. Jack's very against all of the penalty. No, no, no. I'm not against penalties. Stroll gets the penalty. Five seconds. Stroll gets the penalty. Stroll gets the penalty. Five seconds. He turned in on him. I would agree saying that Stroll did turn on on Sonoda, but I don't think there really should have been a penalty because Sonoda (laughs) is at fault for diving into possibly a bit too much, but then Stroll at the end of the day did not look in his rearview mirror enough and and did... Turn into Sonoda, in my opinion. I just I would have given that race an incident, in my opinion. Well done, Chimay has found the only only option that doesn't satisfy anyone. Right, that's good. Good to see. But yeah, he'd, he'd make an excellent F one steward. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, so obviously we have that incident that benefits Bottas in the end because Stroll's bodywork flies off, gets the virtual VSC, yes. and manages to get past. It's lucky. There's not really much else you can say. I think it's only fair Bottas had a bit of luck going this way. Yeah, he probably needed some. The Alpha Terriers really aren't helping out the Red Bulls, are they? No, they're not. Um, But, and then first pit stops come. Hamilton goes from four seconds behind to one and a half with the undercut. First to second pit stops. It's the typical F1 race these days. And the the first third is the most boring part of the race. But then after the second pit stops... 
that's where it livens up because Hamilton pits three laps after Max. Um, in the first pit stop. Second pit stop. Second pit stop, yep. Yeah. Three, lap three laps after Max. Tire degradation's a big thing. Like, they weren't getting that far on the hards, and that's like, you'd expect them to go a while. It was definitely going to be a two stop. So, three laps does matter. He loses three, four odd seconds, makes them up very quickly, and is within DRS for the majority of the next and then we get to oh this is gonna test my memory lap 48 that was the first bit of yes got it right we get to lap 48 hamilton is closer on the front straight jinx to fake that basically fakes max into turn one max goes deep which compromises turn two because if you like if you want to just get a if you don't know get a track map of brazil up turn one if you go deep your line into turn three and then out of turn or line out of turn two is compromised onto the back straight at turn three hamilton has forced him to do that gets behind him got drs again side by side hamilton's ahead going into the corner slightly at the breaking point he's fully clear at the breaking point he's or or at hamilton's breaking point he's fully fully clear yeah Okay, at Hamilton's breaking point, fully clear. Max has enough on the inside, goes up the inside. I'm not going to say anything about, because I'm just trying to give an objective point. Goes up the inside. They both go wide. Max stays ahead. We saw the stewards say, no investigation necessary. In... In because we've got so much more information now, instantly when you were watching it, I imagine it was chaotic in the Clarendon. I imagine they probably complained about the noise. Instant, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they did. Maybe they were upset by it. Instantly, first thoughts: Who's at fault, or is anyone at fault? Who's rough? Clean racing, but very hard racing. Clean um, but hard? All right, yeah, just quick reaction. So clean but hard. Clean but Verstappen. Clean but Verstappen's fault. V- Verstappen's fault by a country mile. Verstappen's fault by a country mile. I'm the same because I'm biased Hamilton fan. But, and then we'll just approach it now because we've got all the information as we're, as we're live. Uh, the, the, whatchamacallit, the camera, the front cam. Onboard footage. Onboard footage, that's the one. Has been uh, released. We've seen what Verstappen's uh, wheel looked like. We didn't have that for some reason during the uh, actual race, and that's something we'll come on to with the stewards as well. Now you've seen that. I don't know have you I don't know if you've seen like brake pressure mapping or whatever. Now you've seen the tire, does your or the wheel, sorry, does your opinion change? Um Nope, my opinion doesn't change. And I think there's one crucial factor over why my opinion doesn't change. All right, yeah, go for it. So originally, on the Facebook, when I saw it live, I was like, nope, hard racing. Undoubtedly, Max was the aggressor. But I'd say borderline, not, I'd say fair, but also borderline consistent to not be penalized with what the FI has been doing over the last two years. We cast our minds back to Austria 2019, Verstappen and Leclerc. Yeah. Again, Verstappen yeah. being the aggressor there. Um, that wasn't penalised. Um, 
then it was Italy 2019, Leclerc and Hamilton. Leclerc wasn't penalised. So I think the FIA could not have penalised Max because they did not penalise those two. And I think the crucial element in this particular incident is, and I have the incident open in front of me right now, and I've paused it at the exact frame where Hamilton starts mm-hmm. breaking. Verstappen, Hamilton at no point is fully clear in the sense that he can put his car right ahead of Verstappen. If you go to see, Verstappen's front wheel and front wing is actually just about alongside Hamilton's rear wheel at a point where if Hamilton had gone left, he would have touched Verstappen. So I think what that did was it made sure it made Hamilton ensure that he checked his mirrors, which I think most drivers wouldn't have. I think most drivers would have at that point thought the move was complete and turned into the corner. But I think the thing with Hamilton having Verstappen as his championship contenders, he knows how Verstappen races. And Verstappen goes for either I make the corner or no one does kind of approach. And Hamilton knew of that approach, which is why when Hamilton starts turning in, he sees Verstappen coming and then takes avoiding action and goes wide with Verstappen. But as for whether it was fair, I think had they penalised Austria 2019 and Italy 2019, I would have said Verstappen's fault, Verstappen penalty, but the FIA didn't penalise those two. So I think if you go by those two incidents, I think this was just about borderline because there was no contact in this incident, which is the crucial bit. All right, Jack, we'll come to you because you look like you want to say something. Of course I do. Um, I think there's two rule sets that we have. There's my own headcanon, and I'm going to start with that, um, which is where pretty much the rules are as they are at the moment. However, they're applied based on what your actions are, not on what the consequences of those actions are. And I think that's what the rules should be. So in this situation, the consequences were... Uh, Max keeps the place, you know, nothing much has happened. Now, I want to point out that intent is different from uh, just the action. So, you know, if someone, uh, if Max is looking to intentionally crash into Hamilton, then he gets more of a penalty in my headcanon world. Um, But I think everyone agrees that there was kind of like, it wasn't that he was trying to crash into Hamilton. It was just that he outbroke himself and he didn't really care. Um, However... The rules say, you know, if you gain a lasting advantage from going off the track, um, then you uh, get penalised. And I think if he had braked at the right time, that he would have, you know, taken the corner and left enough space for Hamilton on the outside, then he would have had to brake significantly earlier, earlier than Hamilton would have, uh, and he would have, you know, fallen behind through the corner and been behind. So I think he has gained a lasting advantage by pushing Hamilton off the track. And then I think, therefore, he should either give the place or he should be penalised. I think also it makes a difference in the stewards' minds who was leading kind of, you know, the lap before, not necessarily who was coming into the corner. So even though Hamilton was ahead on braking, um, they're still considering that he's trying to make the overtake, um, which I don't think should be the case either. um, Because, you know, if... If it was the other way around, if Hamilton is here, uh, um, if Hamilton's behind and in the situation that Max is in, and he pushes Max off the track and continues past, then he's made an advantage of that move. You know, he's overtaken at that point uh, off the track, right? Yeah. So he'd also get a penalty for that. And I don't think that should be the case either. I think, you know, you shouldn't consider where they were when they crossed the start line. I think they should consider only where they were um, when they went into the braking zone. Um, So... Also, I'm going to keep ranting on about this. Um, you, we'll be here all day, but I've I got to say this. Um, you, you mentioned the precedent, uh, and I think 
that we did have a precedent set this season, and that was the two Perez incidents at Austria, um, where exactly the same situation happened, except there was a gravel trap. Now, the gravel trap being there, to me, um, yes, it slowed the you know the car on the outside, but Verstappen's done the same thing, despite there not being a gravel trap there. He has kept the place because of that. So I think there is that precedent, and both times that was a five-second penalty. So I think... Yes, you can argue that those two previous, a little bit further back ones were punished, but I liked the... uh, That was the one race of the year that I thought the stewarding was really good because, you know, Sonoda got his penalties for crossing the white line. And then since then, it's been, you know, Norris doesn't get a penalty because it's it's wet. But he should be in in control of the car. And and I think this is also the case. That's the one race of the year where the stewarding was good and they've undone everything since then. That's my opinion anyway. Okay. But sorry for talking bit, so much. Oh, I've got. Sorry, no, it's fine. I've, I think I've got to let everyone have a go because we could genuinely spend two hours talking about this incident. So, Jim Ray, what do you want to add? I mean, the simple fact is, Verstappen. I, I mean, obviously, we're looking at the footage now that the stewards somehow didn't have in. Yeah, we'll come. We'll come on to that as but, well after this. Yeah, but I would say that. Look at the footage now. It seems that Verstappen didn't really turn the wheel enough that he normally does to actually come to the corner. I mean, I don't know if it was intentional because the fact that tires, Verstappen's tires at that point was actually completely gone. I think because the fact is, the lap or two later, Hamilton would breeze past Verstappen after doing another decoy move on Verstappen to make sure he messes up the turn, uh, turn one, turn yeah. two. And, but... I just, I mean, I don't think so. it was fully intentional to try and shove Hamilton off the track. But then at the end of the day, I do feel Verstappen should have got a five-second penalty because of the fact that he did push Hamilton off the track, whether it was intentional or unintentional. But at the end of the day, he kept his position and he did gain a couple of tens advantage as well. Mm. Right, I want to I add my thoughts because this is one of, this is another one of the flashpoints between Verstappen and Hamilton. And this one is the most egregious in terms of Verstappen forcing Hamilton off. Initially, it doesn't even it doesn't look like Verstappen has is it's not like he's understeering really. He's not trying to turn the wheel when the car's not turning. He's just not turning the wheel. If you um, if you look at the comparison the lap before and the lap that Hamilton's alongside him, the amount of difference there is in the amount of turn in the wheel is ridiculous. And it doesn't it doesn't look like Verstappen just wants to turn the wheel. It's very much like a Rosberg in Austria twenty sixteen. That one was very blatant because he just <laughs> there wasn't there was there wasn't like a little turn. He, Rosberg just went straight. <laughs> but so you've got that. You've got that it looks very obvious that Verstappen hasn't turned. It doesn't even look like he's got understeer. The, the, I think the biggest thing for me is that Verstappen doesn't make the corner in the slightest. Verstappen goes off to basically Argentina. Like, it's ridiculous. And this isn't... It's, it's sort of like everyone says like the, the Silverstone incident... Obviously, it's a lot faster, so it's different. But everyone says, oh, Hamilton could have been closer to the apex. And then you look at Verstappen, he's not even on the racetrack. 
I just think I question why they made the decision so quickly, the stewards. And this is all. We'll come on to this to end it off because we again we could talk about this until like just until forever. Do you think that the stewards made the decision too quickly? And especially, am I right in saying that they said they had all available data on the FIA radio? Or I don't think ever. I don't think they ever okay. said they had the data. I think okay. what they said was no investigation was necessary. Yep. So what happens in an FIA investigation is obviously all the well not all the stewards, but however many stewards sit down in front of the television and they systematically go through and they talk it out, but. Clearly, someone has seen enough that they can say that it is so clearly Max Verstappen, not not anybody's fault, that it's not even worth doing that. Yeah. And that, in my mind, is the most mind-boggling part of all of it. Especially as, after the race, they admit they didn't have the onboard footage. Yeah, but they wouldn't have had a look at the onboard footage. What, what they would have had, you know, the only information they have is the TV replays until they begin an investigation. So... It's just so weird because I like Trav. You, I know you don't think you think it was a racing incident, but surely, at the very least, it warrants an investigation. One hundred percent. I think the decision was too quick. I do get the overwhelming feeling that the stewards had had the decision been made today morning when the footage came out. I do think they would have yet gone for the same outcome. I don't think they would have to okay. Verstappen now. Well, they're going to have to because um, I think about an hour ago, Mercedes, Mercedes have appealed. appealed the decision. And you can, re- you can really understand why. I don't know how it yeah. will work. Like, is it a retroactive five-second penalty? Because that could be crucial because Verstappen, yeah, Verstappen slows up at the end of the race, realistically. And a five-second penalty puts him behind Bottas. Is it a grid drop for Qatar? Like, how many? Is it five? Is it three? Is it one? Is it like what? And that could matter because usually when Bottas is ahead of Verstappen, he nor he's he's much more likely to finish ahead of Verstappen. I think I'd go yeah. for. He's a bit more likely. Yeah, <laughs> not not in current races. Yeah, but I think just it really was confusing how quickly it was ended, how quickly the investigation was ended because. It wasn't even ended after Hamilton had eventually got past Max Verstappen. It was done before. It was done before. So, realistically, Hamilton doesn't get past. He loses the seven points. He now... It's out of his hands. It's all in Verstappen's hands. Like, that's a crucial decision. And to make it so quickly just seems really, really odd. Especially when they admit afterwards that they don't have all of the information. I agree. And especially, I think the FIA tends to have this policy that each incident is looked at equally. So this, even if it had been Verstappen-Hamilton or, say, it had been Masben and Schumacher in the identical spots, the FIA's policy is that we would look at the two incidents with equal importance. Um, and, however, I don't think that approach should be followed. I think the FIA should have taken a bit more time and been a bit more careful about whatever decision they make. I think I don't think it's a penalty, but even regardless of that, I yet think they should have taken at least a while to go through it and actually review the footage and see what they could possibly have thought of, because I agree, it was too quick a decision, and I think they should have considered the fact that these are two title rivals separated by 21 points at that time and 14 points after the race, and I think they should have considered those things in that decision. 
So what the FIA have done is they've actually made life worse for themselves. Because in order to make an appeal... You never do that. What do you mean? <laughs> in order to make an appeal, you have to bring new evidence to the table. Oh, and they've got new so evidence. So the new evidence is clearly just Max is on board, right? Because they didn't have that during the race. Because they've and not the, launched an investigation. And the thing is, they've admitted they didn't have exactly, that Exactly, right? So if they do an investigation, they have a look at it, and they decide Max is not at fault, then the Mercedes appeal has to rely on bringing, you know, like, breaking evidence or something like that. But now they can just say, you know, you haven't done an investigation. Here's this footage that you said you haven't looked at. Please do one. So... This <laughs> is... Because... I mean, what would your penalty be? Let's say, let's say it, just to finish off, let's say the protest works. They rarely do, but I think in this case it could, it's a lot more likely than most. Let's say the protest does work. Now what, the, what is the penalty? Because, I'd say the first one. Because Verstappen's slowing up. He's slowed up because obviously he's not going to catch Hamilton. He's not going to lose position to Bottas. But with this penalty, the slowing up costs him in the end three points because he will get... You can't... You've got to give him a five-second penalty. That's the lowest... If we're giving a retroactive penalty, that's the lowest penalty you can give. And he loses three points. The gap's 11. And who knows? Maybe those three points are what matters. Or do you give him a grid penalty in Qatar? Realistically, probably a three-place grid penalty. That's the lowest they can give. I can't imagine it would be any more than that. They can give a one-place, actually. Can they give a one-place? Um, Sergio Perez got a one-place grid penalty in Mugello 2020 for hitting Raikkonen at the pit exit. Okay, in, in so practice. even a yeah, one... In practice. But that's in, but that's in practice, yeah. maybe because it's in the race. Maybe, yeah. matters. So let's assume... I know you don't think it is, but let's assume yeah. the yeah. protest works. What would be your penalty? Um, my option... Not just seeing the scenario, but also, again, using precedent for forcing another driver off track. So you have Norris Perez, Austria 1, um, Austria 2, and then you have Perez Leclerc, Austria 2, again. Um, both places, five-second penalty for forcing another driver off track and not leaving sufficient space on the outside. Five-second penalty, I think it's only fair it's a five-second penalty in this case. Okay, well. but then obviously Red Bull complained because they didn't know. and then um, I, I guess I'd that's say the, that's tough luck. Yeah, that's a risky yeah, take. Chime? No, I agree. Five seconds will probably be the best best penalty, and it's going to be inevitable. Helmer Marker and Christian Horner—they are going to complain about it because yeah. that's what they do. I mean, I want the championship to be as close as possible. So you know, if yeah, I, I mean, if I could give a thirty second, no, no, well, no. I, mean, I think if you want it as close as possible. You say no penalty because Hamilton wins the next two races without fastest laps. The gap is a whopping zero points. Do you think that's realistic, though? Do you think he'll I win think two is. races with Verstappen second? I think it's very realistic. Okay, I would rather. I think the only way I could see it not being realistic is if Hamilton's got the fastest lap, but Bottas is in fourth. Yeah, because that's the own or, and close enough to Perez or Verstappen or whatever to stop a fastest lap attempt going. That's when or again or. Can you can you imagine if it comes down to like which of Bottas and Perez can like steal the fastest lap from Hamilton or whatever? It just might. It won't. Uh, uh, it could, uh, to be honest, it could come down to anything. The season's mad, but yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, I w- yeah. I think realistically, if I don't know the rules about applying things late, but five seconds seems reasonable to me. Yeah, I think it would have to be, and it would add another layer of drama to an already dramatic season. But after the break, we'll come back. We'll talk about 
just I guess the end of the race obviously Hamilton winning and where it ranks in his greatest wins before doing our predictions for the Qatar Grand Prix the inaugural Qatar Grand Prix but And we're back on the Work F1 show. Uh, my last segment, because I have to run off a bit early to do something. And we'll just finish off the race, really. So, regardless of what we all think on the Verstappen incident, in the end, it, it doesn't matter to the outcome of the race winner. Because Hamilton gets past on lap 60... Oh, is it lap 58? Go on. Someone tell me. Someone Google that so I can know I'm right and feel superior about myself. But um, that 50, I want to say 58. If I'm wrong, then I'll be sacked. But that 58 gets past, uh, wins it by 10 odd seconds. Do you think. So it's his lowest winning position since Germany 2018. His lowest winning position of. Well, second lowest winning position of all time. Lowest winning position in the dry, or totally a dry race. Probably wouldn't have won 28 that race without the wet. Overtakes 30, uh, sorry, 20 odd cars and 30 odd laps. One of his best ever races. I know I did a show with um, Cam Hall on his podcast where we discussed what we thought were like the five best Hamilton races. And I'm thinking now. I probably I had Singapore 2018 in there just based on that qualifying performance. It probably wasn't the best choice, but if I'm thinking now, I almost think that has to be top five. I know he's in the best car, probably with the best engine, but the way he got through the traffic, I get twice, I guess, and got through the traffic, got through the traffic again. Didn't let the Verstappen incident phase him. Then gets past Verstappen. He gets past Perez. He doesn't get past Bottas because team orders, but whatever. Do you think top five performances or what do you think? I mean, I think it comes down to what you think the criteria is. If it's like the the Grand Slam where you, you're, just, you're just faster than your opponents, like sometimes that'll get into your top five, right? But it's the I'm guessing the criteria is more like races that we and Hamilton is going to really care about the ones where he's put his heart and soul into destroying people. And then, uh, yeah, absolutely. That is, that is just like, how many times do you get to, do you get to say that you're that much faster? You faced that much adversity. You've come that close with a title rival. You could have crashed out. You know, that's like the top two really, isn't it? There's, there's only that in Germany that, that there's that kind of like, true grit on the line i think yeah so. i mean and you have to bring the context in he loses this race the championship is out of his hands verstappen can win or come second every race there's no way for hamilton to win the the, the way as crucial like it was just how crucial the race was how he got put to the back of the grid granted Probably wouldn't have won. I think it's undeniable to say that without something miraculous happening, he wouldn't have won this race without the sprint. So maybe that brings it down a bit. But still, going from 20... So going from his first to 20th, to 5th, to 10th, to 1st. It's just like... Is that one of his greatest ever races, Ashraf? I'd say it's the greatest, and if not 
the greatest. I think the only thing that could possibly rival it, in my opinion, would be Silverstone 2007, where he won by over a minute. In the I think match. it was 08. 08, 08, yeah. yep, 07 or 08, yep, the yeah. one where he absolutely dominated in the wet. Yeah. Um, I think either that one would maybe be the only one I'd considered, and the only reason I'd considered over this one is because I think he only won this because the sprint was there. I think had it been a normal weekend, he would have been disqualified right to the back on the race. I think the sprint, in a way, Hamilton was the luckiest but unluckiest driver this weekend at the same time. You, so, you almost wonder how where he would have come with exactly. the sprint. Because, let's say the same outcome you can never say that but let, let's just hypothetically say the same outcome plays out after 24 laps of the race Hamilton is in fifth a second behind third he probably gets past the two of them by lap 30 and then he's what 17 like how far behind? they were about 20 odd seconds behind yeah. so he 20 odd seconds behind with 40 laps to go Bottas is in first place he, he might have been able to win it. I don't think he would have. He would have been faster, undeniably faster. But you have to understand by lap 20, lap 30, I think by only by lap 20, 25, would he have cleared all the cars barring the Red Bulls and the Mercedes, barring Bottas. Which means Mercedes would only have had one more pit stop to tinker around with in terms of strategy. And one pit stop with 20 seconds to make up would have been a lot of time. It would have been a tall order. Podium, undoubtedly, he would have made it on. The win, I don't think so. Okay. I think he would have got Perez, though. I think maybe that is something that brings it down, just because the sprint exactly. did benefit him quite a lot. Even then, I'd say Hampton's second greatest. Yeah, I think easy easy top five. And I yeah. think, Kimmy, it's just the way he made it through the field. As Jack was said before in the sprint, there was... So there was... Ricardo was the only driver that seemed to hold him up a bit in the sprint. In the race... He's up to, I want to say, seventh by lap one. Then he gets past... Oh, who does he get? Who was in sixth? He knocks off the two Ferraris in consecutive laps. Yeah, it's just who... It's Gasly as well. Yeah, so he gets Gasly. Then the two Ferraris. Then the two Ferraris quickly. three laps behind Perez. And I think he's third by lap ten. Yep. And second by lap fifteen... I think he quite spent three laps behind so yeah yep so. but just do you think it's the way that he got through the field that makes it one of the greatest performances and then obviously goes on and wins it yeah i mean it's just it's not just that but he somehow managed to keep that pace kept his tires alive and he kept that endurance just that, that fight through all the way through i think personally speaking there would have been a chance that at least Hampton would have contended for the win and would probably would have battled for stop in the last couple of laps had it been a normal weekend because the fact that Hamilton was at least half a second quicker than the rest of the grid all weekend long it i said that i wouldn't i wouldn't deny that he he would actually had a chance for a win yeah and do you i mean just question to all of you do you think that this race could be the momentum boost that we see obviously i saw like on the wtf1 podcast they did a segment on that there's no fastest car this season i think that's right i didn't i think on race by race basis however there's often been a fastest car probably oh bahrain maybe was equal i'm just trying to think of what other races could have been fairly equal the us the usa or usa sorry equal I think even Mexico was equal because if you see Mercedes actually got pulled by yeah. four tenths. I think just in the race. I think yeah, race off. pace and pole pace were 
been quality paced with very different. And are there any other races that were fairly? I think I imagine Spain still, happened fairly close to the end, didn't it? Spain and yeah. yeah, Spain maybe they were close on paper, but Spain Mercedes yeah. more dominant. I think I'm thinking France. It's oh, just the reverse of that. Yeah. Maybe Britain. They're quite equal, but we yeah, never know because Verstappen yeah, ended in still. ended up in a barrier at 100 million miles an hour. But there, there have been a few equal races, but there have also been a lot of race or a few races where one team has dominated the other. So, Zandvoort, Mexico for Red Bull, maybe at the start of the season, Portugal for Mercedes. I say almost Russia for Mercedes. Yeah. Verstappen would would have got nowhere near the front had the rain not come, and Hamilton like. He's got. He's starting. He fell back to seventh. He's got to get through the field in a difficult race, and then obviously Brazil has been a dominant display for Mercedes. Do you think that this could be? Yeah, I've gone on a massive tangent there, but do you think that this could be the momentum boost, especially as it's going into the final three races? I think so. Like two of which. Well, one of which we know is normally a Mercedes track. One of uh, Qatar, the next one, bit more 50-50. Jeddah, it's looking like if Mercedes have the same straight line speed, they're going to romp that race through, if, unless something incredible happens. I think, I think Do you think this could is, be it? I think this is it, and not because of the engine they've put in or because of the fact Mercedes might just be the dominant car of the next two races. I think the main key is um, Lewis Hamilton's race message after one of the races in which he said I think it was after the final race after the sprint where he said it's not yet over guys I think when Lewis Hamilton is in the right mental state I think he is the hardest driver to beat on the grid he can take a car that's three tenths down on the Red Bull right up there with the step and I think and we can also see on days when he's down like Mexico there are not many drivers as demotivated as Lewis, mm. ha- Lewis Hamilton is but when it's his day and when he's in the right mental state he is the man to beat and I guess just for the final, a very final, because I do have she, I do have to run off in a bit. Do you think that this could have shot Mercedes in the arm? Not like it's just given them a shot in the arm because they had to deal, like they had to deal with the disqualification, the non, like all that that brought with it, the um, five place grid penalty. Obviously, they're probably fine with that because they took the engine of choice the non-investigation of the Verstappen incident. And you saw when Hamilton got past Verstappen, we've got a new meme format of, <laughs> of um, Toto uh, like just pointing at the camera. And even after, after both the sprint and the, um, the race, Toto being quite vocal, I can't say it on air because we will get shut down. But he's, he's like, he was like, like he did, yeah, he had a go at sort of everyone. So you almost imagine this could... Red Bull would, like, poke the tiger, and now they're going to come out all guns blazing for the final few races. Operationally, Mercedes haven't been the best this season. We know that, right? Uh, and I guess we're about to see three races to go. If they step it up now, um, then brilliant. However, it's not necessarily that simple because it's more about like the processes the team has behind them and the brains behind it and also kind of consistency you can say oh we've got to go to you know we've got to go to Bahrain and do the fastest pit stop but realistically it's more about not making mistakes and you can never say that being more energetic you know being more motivated is going to help you make fewer mistakes because I don't think that's true yeah. I think I think in Mercedes's case it is true I think with Mercedes 
with Mercedes, the thing is, um, when things go wrong for Mercedes, they all go wrong together. And the, the weekends, their dominant, um, their dominance is unparalleled. Best case, Monaco. They didn't have a car, a fast car from the start, and you can make out it all cascaded from them in the race. Poor strategy. Um, Bottas got stuck in the pit lane for about two months. Um, <laughs> then um, I think it was Baku again, not a fast car from the start of the weekend. Hamilton made a mistake. A race which he could have won, he made a mistake yeah. from pole. So I think Mercedes, when the motivation isn't there, are a team that makes mistakes. And like Jack said, operationally, they haven't been spot on. You'd expect a world champion team, even in the worst cases, to be on top of their game. But they just simply haven't this year. And that's left the door open for Red Bull. But on weekends like um, this weekend, where Mercedes knew they had a fast car, they did everything flawlessly. Strategy, pit stops. The way they handled the media, I love the aggression mm. Wolf has brought on. And he said it in one of the interviews. He said, now, diplomacy is no longer an option. That was his exact quote. So um, I think it's going to be game on for the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean, Shemai, do you want to add any final words? No. <laughs> it, just, it was just a breathtaking weekend for Formula One and just in general. Yeah, I think... If you wanted a race that would lead up to the explo- an explosive finale filled with inter-team drama, inter- in, like team and steward drama, drivers on the track barging each other off, colliding, coming together, I think you couldn't have a better race than the Brazilian Grand Prix. Well, we've still got a bit of time, but I'm going to have to leave you there. Thank you for listening. I'm going to leave it to Jack to do the predictions. He's um Chinmay's gonna make some great predictions for the raw side, aren't you, Chinmay? Yes. Yes, exactly. You are your 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 buddy scheme's on the line here. It's not. <laughs> but thank you for listening and thank you for Yeah. Thank you for listening. There's not much else to say really. Looking forward to Qatar and who knows how it will be especially with this season and especially with the drama we've had on track. But I'll leave you here and then I'll leave it to Jack for the final 10 minutes. And we're back for the final, final segment of the Warwick F1 show, talking about the Brazilian Grand Prix. But uh, we're, we're kind of not talking about the Brazilian Grand Prix anymore. We've got predictions to do and very little time to do them in. So I'm going to continue on with my guests, uh, Chime and Hushraf, who very conveniently uh, haven't heard or, or, or weren't present last week when we tried to do the predictions. So at the moment, the score is two to Warwick F1 Society and two to, to Raw. Um, so I'm just going to pick with these. I flipped a coin already. Um, so we're going for, for random ones first. So the podium for, for let's say, Team 1 was Verstappen, Perez, and then Sonoda. Uh, and then the three predictions were Alonso gets the most overtakes in the weekend, which uh, I believe is clearly false. Uh, no, no wet tyres were used, uh, which was true. And Lewis gets a mechanical failure, which... Uh, whether or not you count the uh, DRS opening is up to you. And then we've got Team 2. So their podium is Hamilton, Bottas, Verstappen, which was very close to what happened, just the switch between Bottas and Verstappen. Uh, Hamilton and Verstappen collide in the sprint race, uh, which didn't happen. It almost happened in the normal race, but that's not what the prediction says. Uh, Gasly, P4. Uh, can you remember where he was? Uh. P7, okay. Uh, and Alfa Romeo score points, which I don't think they did? No. No, no okay. So, uh, which, which do you reckon? Um, so, points mostly go to for being right, but um, also for kind of like 
boldness of predictions. Team one didn't get anything right in the podiums. I think the only ones they got right were um, no wet dyes were used, and I think one more, if I can't remember. But the podium was. The mechanical failure is kind of like 50 50 there. Yeah, I'd say yeah. team two was the closer one, not just in terms of podiums. Yeah, I'd say team two is a clear one here. Ah, damn it. <laughs> uh, well done to Raw for, for taking that one, and there's a 3 to 2 lead. We've still got two races left, uh, and that brings me on to our next point. Um, we're going to come and make some predictions for the Qatar Grand Prix. Uh, so I've enlisted Hushrav for the, for the Warwick F1 Society team, so if you want to go ahead and uh, read out our podium positions, I'm just going to get make sure I. In fact, no, go for it, because I can, I can write these down later. So, for the Qatar Grand Prix, I think the podium's going to be Hamilton B1, Bottas B2, Verstappen B3. Um, if fastest lap counts, then Perez fastest lap. No, we, we're, we're not counting that. We should do. That's a good idea, but we haven't asked that. So, Hamilton uh, and then Bottas and then Verstappen. Okay, what do you reckon? Uh, yeah, so I've got Hamilton, Verstappen, then Bottas. Okay, so similar. We both got Hamburg Bot uh, podiums, but it's just a question of whether it's that Mercedes, that second car that can get in front. Uh, is this optimistic, or are we just like, do we think that Hamilton's really going to run away with it? I think the thing is, it's Middle East. It's a track that, and then and Hamilton and Mercedes are just generally so much better at Middle East tracks. And you can't overtake, and you need straight light speed, and that's what Mercedes have got over Red Bull, so... Okay, uh, so Hushraf, you give us the three predictions for Warwick F1 Society, just the completely random ones. So I'm going to go with Valtteri Bottas, pole position. He goes very well at new tracks on the calendar. I'm going to go with Ferrari outscoring McLaren because Ferrari's had the far superior package the last two weekends. And I'm going to go with Mazepin um, finishing ahead of Schumacher in the race because I think Mazepin's found second life with the Haas and he... He's been going well the last couple of rounds. That last one will be an interesting one. Uh, so we've got, remind me again, uh, we've got Bottas on pole, uh, Ferrari score more points than McLaren, uh, and Mazepin beating Schumacher in the race. And just on the Ferrari, McLaren won. Um, both Ferraris um, out-finishing both McLarens. Okay, so you know, so it might be McLaren 4th and... F- sorry, it might be Ferrari 4th and 5th, and then McLaren 7th and 9th or something. Okay. Right, Chimmy, give us the three. All right, I'm going to go a bit opposite here. I'm going to go for a Lando Norris top seven finish. Okay. Then uh, that, that, could, that could both happen. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Okay. Giovinazzi in Q3. Okay. And then Lance Stroll crushing in either one of the qualifyings or the, in the race. Okay, so we... that includes either if it's just punting into somebody or if he just crashes into a wall. Okay, so in a competitive session... Lance Stroll crashes. So that's Q1, Q2, Q3, and the race. Yeah. One of those. Yeah. And then we have uh, Gio coming back, angry about not being appointed next year, and he gets into Q3. Yep. And Lando Norris, top seven. Okay, got that right? Yep. Lovely. Okay, there you have it. Uh, So the... Uh, the podcast will of course be out on the Warwick F1 Society YouTube uh, if you're listening to that um, hi make sure you put your own comments uh, your own predictions down below if you're not on that if you're on the Raw Sport uh, Spotify you can send either to Raw or to the Warwick F1 Society you can send your predictions there if you fancy it Uh, next year we're going to have a proper system I think Um, but for now it's time for Warwick F1 Society to make that ground up I think see if we can get back into it Uh, we're going to end the show there thank you both uh, both to Chimay for coming in late and and, uh, running through the actual race with us thank you Uh, and to Hushra for being here the whole time repping Warwick F1 Society lovely Uh, and we're going to head off now (laughs) 